welcome to Educational Alpha. Kaya CEO and host Bill Kelly brings you on the ground conversations with business leaders, educators, coaches, and industry colleagues from around the globe. In this episode, Bill catches up with two guests from the digital asset space. Jennifer Murphy, founder and CEO of Runa Digital Assets, and Alex Bodie, head of client and portfolio solutions at Runa. It's no secret that the evolution of the web has transformed our world. Its first phase, Web 1, opened the unprecedented availability of information, and Web 2's interactive social and mobile applications created some of the world's most powerful networks and most valuable companies. Listen in to hear how Jennifer and Alex believe digital assets to be the start of Web 3. Welcome to the latest edition of Educational Alpha, where the investor's edge starts with informed consent. I'm your host, Bill Kelly, and today I'm joined by two guests, Jennifer Murphy and Alex Bodie. Uh, Good to see both of you. Hey, Bill. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having us. No, my pleasure. And Alex, I'm going to come to you in a second because you were the catalyst as to how I met Jennifer in the first place. But uh, same question for both of you. Uh, Jennifer, I think you and I have been in this industry about the same time. I hesitate to say approaching four decades, but we are who we are, I guess, at the end of the day. And you've had a very interesting transition from what I would consider a very senior roles in TradFi to being a trailblazer in the DeFi space. And we did a, a, just a, a webinar with you yesterday. I want to come back to some of that because there's some very interesting points you made there too, but maybe talk a little bit about the past, but more interestingly, what led you to Runa and uh, what did you see that maybe others are not seeing in terms of value proposition? Yeah, Bill, I started my career in the 1980s, and my first job, I was hired by Bill Miller, who at the time was uh, highly regarded, but not that well-known as a money manager. He, of course, became one of the most famous and highly regarded money managers in the world, ultimately, but I didn't know that at the time, and neither did he. And when I started in asset management, it was just a high-growth business. You know, we were part of a brokerage firm and brokers were moving from helping clients select individual stocks to mutual funds. And of course, Bill was just a highly skilled mutual fund manager and grew a great business. So I had a front row seat to all of his uh, sort of interesting thoughts about what now we now call Web2, all the Internet and a lot of interesting things, stories there, but very relevant to my decision to move to digital assets Bill's a Bitcoin OG. He started buying Bitcoin in, I think, 2013 or so, and has been in my ear about it for many years. And that together with my uh, experience at Western Asset, where we were actually using blockchain applications to collapse some of the very labor-intensive work of operations in asset management, I became convinced this is the most important thing happening in financial services digital assets. And so I started a company that Alex uh, has joined me, thank goodness. And we manage digital asset portfolios. So things like Bitcoin and Ethereum and other listed tokens, we specialize in that. Uh, Thanks, Jennifer. And Alex, as I said, I I first knew you, I think, at Two Sigma, and you've been uh, converted to the other side. I won't say the dark side, it's probably the light side, and and not enough people realize that. But what, what caught your eye? What was your transition? Yeah. So I was at Two Sigma, before that at AQR, so spent my career in quantitative investment management before coming over to digital assets. And I think a lot of people get into digital assets because they had a personal investment or they heard about it from a friend and got involved. That was not my journey at all. 
when I was at Two Sigma, I was working on a product called Venn. It's a factor-based analytics platform. And a lot of uh, users of that platform were asking us at the time, you know, what are you doing in the digital asset space, in the crypto space? And um, ended up doing some research on behalf of Two Sigma running Bitcoin, the largest digital asset, through our traditional risk factor model. And finding that most of its risk, 91%, was unexplained by traditional risk factor models. So that really got me curious about like what is the factor structure then of liquid digital assets. And wrote a piece that was public. Jennifer read it. And this was at the time, right, Jennifer, that you were starting Runa in the summer of 21. And so, Bill, when I was doing all of this analysis on Bitcoin and other liquid digital assets, I was just looking at the time series of their returns. I had no idea what the difference was between Bitcoin and Uniswap, for example. So after I did that research and after I started talking with Jennifer, then I went into the kind of rabbit hole that everyone talks about. So that was my journey in. And Jennifer was convinced that this was one of the most important things happening in financial services and was really excited to join her and in, in the investment management of digital asset portfolios. Uh, so uh, two very interesting transitions. And if I think about trying to find alpha, it's usually found in pockets of great inefficiency. And particularly if you're not elbow to elbow with somebody else, if you're the only one knows in, it, it's huge. And it seems like that's how every industry and every opportunity starts. And Jennifer, you told a very interesting story on the webinar yesterday about the Google IPO. And that stuck with me for whatever reason. And maybe if you could recap that for the listeners here, because I think it just shows maybe how uh, web, I don't know if that's 1.0, but it just shows how maybe uh, people didn't fully understand or see around a corner that you and Alex have been able to see around here. Yeah. In the early 2000s, I think the Google IPO was 2004. And Google took a different approach to their IPO, but obviously Google was well known at the time. But there was a lot of questions around what, how would they monetize search? You know, this was, it seems silly now that this was a question back then, but this was a big, uh, and it, it's sort of reminiscent of questions we hear in, in digital assets now. But back then, uh, Google was obviously well known as a search engine, but there were questions about, you know, what's really the business model here? How will it be monetized? And so in the IPO process, ultimately, only two institutions bought Google on the IPO. Bill Miller and his team and the Fidelity team. And that was it. And if you look at now the sort of, you know, appreciation, the wealth uh, creation of Google over since over that time, over almost 20 years, it's incredible. But at the time it was controversial and something that really only those who were willing to be, take some risk and sort of think about things differently were willing to participate from the outset. So I really credit Bill for, um, that's really his power alley. And who else is at the trough? Do you know? Was it a lot of individuals or family offices? Who, who bought the rest of it? Yes, exactly. Individuals, uh, family offices, yeah, more retail, non-institutional. Whereas, you know, in a classic sort of uh, hot IPO, the institutional clients of the large broker dealers are really the ones that set price and, and set the tone for the IPO. Yeah, and maybe that's, a part of the opportunity and challenge as well, if I think about how most investment theses arise, they start at the institutional level. Uh, we rinse out all the value proposition and then say, look, let's democratize this down to the poor retail individual and see if we can get a little bit more juice out. But here, it seems like the whole concept of digital currencies and, and cryptocurrencies started with the individual and Web3 was, I think, gamification to a very large degree. 
And I think a lot of the old souls stood back and said, this is just ridiculous. I don't get this. And uh, But it's interesting, even with Google, maybe this is uh, history either rhyming or repeating itself again. Yeah. You know, if you think back to just your own experience with something like Uber, I remember vividly the first time someone told me they had taken an Uber and described it to me. I thought it was the craziest thing I ever heard. I thought, I thought, and if you think about that, then Uber already existed and people were using it. And I was still in disbelief. And I think that's a good lesson for Web3. I think these Bitcoin, Ethereum, Uniswap, which Alex mentioned, other um, digital tokens, these are global networks and organizations that already exist, that have a user base, that in Ethereum's case have significant revenue and profitability. And people just don't believe, <laughs> they don't believe them. <laughs> and so it really is difficult for all of us, I think, to see a change like this as it's occurring. And Alex, uh, maybe a question for both of you, but I'll start with you. You talked about some of the analysis you did on, on risk factors for uh, digital currencies, I guess, if I can use that term. But if you think about digital assets, I think oftentimes maybe the outsider thinks digital assets is Ethereum or Bitcoin or some other cryptocurrency when virtually anything can be digitized. So maybe just definitionally, how do you or how does Runa define a digital asset? This was something because I think the space is kind of complex and there's a lot going on. And so we found it helpful at Runa to kind of organize our thoughts around what are like, I'll start with like fungible digital assets. We wanted to create almost like a, a GIX-like sector framework for digital assets, you know, similar to what exists in equity markets. And so we've kind of organized the space into six different sectors, and it's helpful for us for a variety of, of use cases, risk, and also just like cross-sectional comparisons of assets within those sectors. But I think the original asset, you know, Bitcoin, as really a, a currency, a way to, to exchange value globally instantly with very low fees, no intermediaries. And there's a lot of competitors to Bitcoin, whether there are direct forks or changing you know, something in the code and they're trying to create their own type of network there. And then kind of with the advent of smart contracts, you had Ethereum, which now allows you to create applications on top of a blockchain. And so we have what we call like smart contract platforms, which are Ethereum and Ethereum competitors like Solana and, and Avalanche um, and Aptos. And then, then we kind of think about the applications that are built on top of those smart contract platforms as another sector. You mentioned DeFi, decentralized finance, bringing a lot of financial applications on a blockchain without intermediaries. So this could be trading. We mentioned Uniswap a lot. That's a decentralized exchange that competes with Coinbase. And, but that's, that's code that runs autonomously on the Ethereum blockchain. Um, so that's an example of a DeFi application. And then there's also gaming and metaverse applications that are built on a blockchain different Web3 games where users can own their assets digitally. Um, so they could own sneakers that their avatar wears in the game, um, or they could own a sword that they use to, to fight in certain games. And then finally, uh, we also look at like utilities and infrastructure. So there are kind of some behind the scenes projects that are working to make these blockchain networks grow and work. So an example would be kind of like an Oracle bringing outside information to the blockchain on chain. So if, if you wanted to look at oil prices on chain, the blockchain has no idea what the price of oil is. So oracles can help bring that information on chain. So that's kind of how we've separated it. Uh, and the final one is, is stable coins too. I should have mentioned those assets that have values that are tied to other assets, most commonly the US dollar. So that's how we've kind of organized the, the space of digital assets and 
like I said, we use it for a lot of different purposes, but that's mostly for, for fungible assets where one digital asset is the exact same as another kind of NFTs or non-fungible assets are an entirely different category that we personally don't invest in. But Jennifer, anything kind of that you would add there? I would just add that, Bill, you said almost anything can be digitized. We agree with that, can be tokenized. And we expect many, many, if not everything will be. (laughs) Um, Some through the things that Alex mentioned, um, like identity could be handled by some of the tokens Alex mentioned, for example. But we think NFTs are incredibly important, but they're not often investable in our view. So, you know, Bill, you mentioned Alpha is the subject of this podcast. You know, there are people who spend 100% of their time trading NFTs. <laughs> you know, that's all they do. And uh, I've heard them talk and seen them act, and they're really good at it. So it's a very highly specialized area where I think some people are earning a lot of money and everyone else is not. <laughs> so I think there were a number of NFTs funds started in 2022, many of which I think are now closed. A couple of follow-ups. I want to talk, stay with the NFTs for a second, but also then move in a moment to regulation. And when I talk about the NFTs, maybe the responsibility of the popular press, and here I'm not talking about some deep academic journal that may know a hell of a lot more than I do in this space, but if I think about the FT or the Wall Street Journal, whenever I read an article, it's about an artist named Beeple and something being sold for 60 some odd million dollars or a $650,000 yacht in the metaverse. And, and I think most serious investors look at this and just scratch their head and saying, this is ridiculous. So I, I think that the media has some level of responsibility because I think you could easily dismiss it when you hear something like that. So, so should the media be, and maybe this is a crazy question to ask, but they, should they be a bit more balanced about some of the risks, but also some of the opportunities at the same time? And maybe you don't want them to be because you don't want competition. I was just thinking that when you said that. (laughs) I'm not sure we do want them to be yet. But yeah, it's a good question. I think that you're right that they focus on the most egregious things. I think maybe that's clickbait or something. And I do think they do their readers a disservice because there are really interesting things happening. You, You probably heard about this, but someone recently sold their house using an NFT uh, on a blockchain infrastructure. So it was, you know, there was a lot of preparation. It wasn't uh, sort of easily achieved, but it was a sort of proof of concept. You could see it's certainly possible um, as the ecosystem builds out that we could buy and sell things like homes and other difficult to trade currently items on the blockchain. And uh, with confidence and with the, you know, the same, same confidence, you, you use uh, sort of the internet for other things right now. So that, I think that's where the media does a disservice to lots of people who are long-term investors who I think they're doing them no favors in envisioning how big and how important could this technology become. And, you know, we think it's not alone, but together with other significant technologies, like you mentioned yesterday, AI, incredibly important technology, we think. But people are going to combine these things together in ways that we don't expect. And they're going to change everything, our society, our government, our world. 
And all three of us, I mentioned, I teed this up a second ago, regulation, all three of us come from highly regulated uh, backgrounds. And I assume Rune is regulated as well. He registered with the SEC, is he? No? We're not registered. We're registered at the state level, but not the federal level. Because of size. It's because of size. size. So, yeah. so eventually, uh, and knowing the, the two of you, you will be in very short order. What are your views on regulation? And maybe not to answer the question for you, to think that this whole digital industry can grow up independent of regulation and have permissionless blockchains, I think is a bit ridiculous because uh, the SEC has ultimate look back, right? And they're watching what everybody's doing and they're going to codify regulation maybe five years from now when they catch up. And I think that's been the moat. You mentioned Uber before. Uber did not have to worry about regulation. They could go build the platform, run the poor dispatcher over in the yellow cab, and they're done. But what are, you, are your views on regulation? How important or not do you view it in terms of this ecosystem, the future of digital assets? In our view, this asset class and technology cannot be what it's meant to be without regulation. So I think that we, you know, we're, we've been reading a book our team, which Alex and I have others on our team as well. Um, We're reading Carlotta Perez's book, Technological Revolutions in Financial Capital. And in there, she lays out a framework that's her way of thinking about it, but it's incredibly powerful, I think, of how technological revolutions happen. In her view, they happen every 50 years or so, starting with the Industrial Revolution. And she sort of organizes them into different phases. But a critical phase, a critical thing that happens in each revolution is the new technology so disrupts the existing environment and there's corruption and all sorts of terrible things happen. And that convinces everyone, hey, we can't ignore this. We have to put institutional controls in place. We have to put regulation in place. We have to pass laws so that we can really control this for the good of society rather than for bad actors. And I think we're going, you know, we're reaching that point in digital assets for sure. And we have to, if we really want them to become part of the fabric of our society. So Alex, I don't know if you want to add anything, but that's, I think, where we sort of came out after our discussion. Yeah, I think when we were reading this, Jennifer, right, it was so hard to not read this and and draw parallels to where we are in the digital asset space, especially since, Jennifer, you just mentioned like that phase right before regulation where there's a really big expansion in, in kind of the innovation of the technology and that you have these almost like criminals that come in. There's a lot of greed and corruption that happens. And then there's this turning point where regulation comes into play. And after that, There's this long period of what I think what they call, right, Jennifer, like the golden age, where the technology can really prosper. There's more use cases and there starts to become best practices around using the technology. So it was really hard not to draw those parallels and look at where we are here in 2023 with all the regulatory actions that have been, you know, announced recently as a result of, you know, what was happening last year. So, yeah, that that was, I think, a perfect uh, I would really recommend that book, Technological Revolutions and Financial Capital by Carlotta Perez. So when when I post this, I will certainly tag that as well. Alex, a bit of a self-serving question for you. You've been a longtime friend and a Kaya member throughout the iterations of your career. And somebody that we both know, but I won't mention it here specifically by name, had approached us to say, hey, why doesn't Kaya put their membership on a blockchain? And as you know, uh, you have to annually attest that you haven't done anything untoward in terms of ethical behavior. And if it's on the blockchain, the community can call each other out. 
and you could create a Kaya coin perhaps as well. So kind of an interesting concept. So maybe a, a lesson you can teach me. Could you ever see a credential or credentialing body be on a blockchain? I think absolutely. I think one of the most exciting revolutionary things about this space is this concept of ownership and being able to prove that you own something. So the fact that I own like the the Kaya charter holder designation because I've earned it. I've gone through the exams and done all that. I can put it on my resume. You know, anyone really could put it on their on their resume that would go against ethical, you know, standards. But to be able to prove on a blockchain that I've earned that and Kaya has issued me one, I think is very powerful. So and I think there's also this concept around communities and how you think about, you know, communities as, as it relates to NFTs. And they all share some sort of mission. They want to, you know, in this case, push forward the alternative education and the investment landscape. So I could see a nice community being built around Kaya membership on chain. I don't know exactly what that looks like, but I think there's something there. Well, maybe you can consult at a discounted price when the day comes. So, So thanks for the thought, Alex. So as we move toward the end, maybe Jennifer, starting with you, uh, by title, it's Educational Alpha. I think you've left, both of you left some very good thoughts uh, here in the course of this discussion, but any closing observations for the audience? Just that most wealth creation generally is driven by a small number of wealth creators. There's some great studies on this. One that showed that stock returns, for example, over the last 90 years were primarily more than half of the 35 trillion of wealth creation in stocks, 25,000 stocks in total. Uh, half was created by just 90 companies. So I think this idea that there are fat tails or you know a few wealth creators that really drive the bulk of all wealth creation, I'm expecting will be true in the next 90 years. And I think it's really important that people be open to what those wealth creators might be. We think digital assets are a really good candidate, but there are others too, AI uh, being a great example. So that would be my closing thought, Bill, is just to really give attention to those things that could be those very long-term wealth creators. And just one quick follow-up, Jennifer. Will, will there, I think the answer is yes, but uh, how do you foresee an investable index in this space coming about, the equivalent of an S&P 500? So if I want to passively be involved with maybe some cap-weighted exposure, I could get in. Yeah, Bill, at the moment, we would not recommend cap-weighted exposure here, given the immaturity, because the studies we've done have shown those cap-weighted indices change rap leadership changes rapidly and once something falls out of leadership it almost never returns so so that's not a great formula for indexing yet so just as the space matures we do expect these winners you know network effects businesses which almost all of these are do have a winner take all quality to them so i think you're seeing that with bitcoin and ethereum somewhat everything beyond that is a question mark so i do think we're some ways away from that so far. I think if people want to get involved, I think the easiest way to get involved is to stick with things like Bitcoin and Ethereum to start with. Okay. All right. So next episode, we'll talk about an investable index. <laughs> Alex, uh, final word from you? Yeah. The final thing is we talked about this is, is this idea of the retail, the individual really leading this digital asset revolution. And there's been talk for a long time, like the institutions are coming. And I pers- I thought it was going to be like the JP Morgans and the Black Rocks. And I think they're getting involved for sure. But something that we have our eye on um, at Runa that's really exciting for us 
is there are a lot of these non-crypto native companies, I'll call them like web two companies, but some of them have been around for like decades or longer that are seeing the opportunity in this space and are actively building out their web three initiatives. And a lot of them are using NFTs as a way to do that. So I'll just call out a couple of them, Starbucks, Reddit, Nike, Dolce & Gabbana, they're using NFTs as a way to deepen the engagement with their customers offer new experiences and also generate a new source of revenue. So, and they're using blockchain technology and NFTs to do that. So we have our eye on that. I think that's going to be one of the next key waves of bringing adoption into this ecosystem. So yeah, that's a market theme that we're really excited about. There's a lot to be negative on right now with digital assets given 2022, but I, yeah, there's a lot of great things happening at the institutional level as well. Okay, good. Well, a great discussion. And from a formatting standpoint, this is the first time I had two guests on at once, and I kind of liked it. So I appreciate you being sort of my guinea pig here. But Jennifer, Alex, uh, thank you so much. Thanks, Bill. Thank you, Bill. My pleasure. So uh, please join us on the next segment of Educational Alpha as we look to always put the investor first through transparency, education, and informed consent. Mm -hmm.